21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. If you are a returning listener, I want to truly thank you for your time and energy and for listening to as many episodes as you can. Uh, If you are a new listener, I hope you gain some insight and value from not only this episode, but uh, future episodes as well. And just a little bit of backstory. My podcast is uh, all about sharing stories from the world of education and beyond, of people who strive for both personal and professional excellence through the work that they do. And my guest today, Rick Warmly, uh, absolutely embodies that uh, journey of personal and professional excellence. Rick is an international educational consultant, and I guess I say international educational consultant because he has traveled the world sharing his work. And just to name a few of the countries that he has uh, worked in, and presented in uh, Canada, China, Europe, Thailand, Japan, Vietnam, Korea, Australia, the Middle East. Uh, He's presented in all 50 states. He's actually from the U.S. And he has even presented at the White House. Uh, In 1996, Rick uh, was awarded uh, Disney's American Teacher uh, of the Year um, for the work that he does. Uh, he's received several other awards as well. His work has been featured on ABC's Good Morning America, um, the show in the U.S. called Hardball with Chris Matthews. Uh, his work has also been featured in the National Geographic and Good Housekeeping magazines as well. Um, I'm just taking a look at his bio here. I mean, I could go on and on. He's done so many things. Uh, he has been a co- consultant for the National Public Radio, NPR, uh, as well as USA Today uh, and the Smithsonian Institute. So a well-traveled, well-seasoned veteran of the education field for almost 40 years now. And although Rick would never, ever want me to refer to him as an expert, I'm throwing that title out. He truly is an expert and a guru when it comes to formative and summative assessment, among many other areas of education. He presents to educational leaders around the world, as well as practitioners and researchers. Uh, I first met Rick in 2012 uh, at, the, uh, at an international educational conference in Bangkok, Thailand. He was the keynote speaker there. I have since uh, followed him on Twitter. I'm highly inspired by his work uh, and and his overall, I guess, mindset when it comes to uh, being the best that you can be. Um, so in the episode, uh, today's episode, I say today, but I actually recorded it a couple days ago on Thursday, April 12th, uh, or April 13th, sorry. Uh, but in the episode, I had every intention of pursuing the angle of formative and summative assessment. And I really wanted to dig deep and and uh, kind of unpack the the strategies and the philosophy that uh, Rick has in regards to formative and summative assessment. 
but it only took a few minutes to realize that I was uh, captivated by the stories he was telling, uh, just by what he was sharing in regards to his own uh, personal and professional journey, uh, dating back decades. So Rick really opened up and, and shared a lot about his personal and professional life. And uh, I just decided to continue to go in that direction and to learn more about Rick. And one of the things that uh, really inspires me is to understand how and and I, I want to say why, but how people strive for personal and professional excellence in the work that they do. So again, I just decided to to stick with that um, throughout the conversation with Rick, which lasted one hour and fifteen minutes. So uh, you might not have time to listen to the complete one hour and fifteen minutes, but um, I hope you you listen to the whole thing uh, and get through the whole thing, whether it be uh, listening to it over the next week or listening to it in one shot. So, Rick, if you're listening to this, um, thank you again for your time. I really hope our paths cross, and I hope that your wise words and your insightful stories. Uh, really inspire people to uh, be the best that they can be. Without further ado, my conversation with Rick Warmly. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. Uh, I told you everything, uh, not everything, but I I, uh, gave you a brief introduction into who Rick Warmly is. And I'm so happy to have him on my show. He's here. I'm looking at him. I'm recording in Saudi Arabia. And Rick, you are at your home in? Virginia, near Washington, D.C. Excellent. Um, I've been, uh, you know, you've been quite busy. I appreciate you taking the time to um, spend with me just to kind of unpack uh, kind of the work that you do and and your educational philosophy. And your work has really inspired me over the years. Uh, just to give some backstory, uh, we first met in Bangkok, I think it was 2012, at the Ircos uh, Admin Conference. Absolutely. It was a wonderful conference. Yeah. So um, I guess maybe we'll just start out with, even though I've said a few things about you in the intro, um, what are some things you just want people to know about you as we begin this uh, discussion? Well, first and foremost, I'm a dad. And I have come at the education, which is my, my job, my profession, from both sides of the parent-teacher conference table. So I, I look at education as both a parent, uh, but also as a practitioner, uh, as an advocate uh, for both those sides. Uh, I guess, additionally, I'm a, I'm a writer, and because of writing, I'm a thinker. And they're very synergistic. I'm a better thinker and teacher for having written about it, and I'm a better writer for having taught and thought about it. So I think that makes up a big part of who I am. And I guess the, another part of that is the creative adventurer uh, side that kind of fills me out a little bit. I, I'm up for adventure. I used to skydive. I've gone hang gliding and that sort of thing. The physical adventures, um, you know, <laughs> as a... Uh, you know, as a scout in Northern California, uh, you know, sleeping out at night under the stars by yourself, you know, far away from any flashlight or any fellow camper to kind of, you know, see what you're made of, your, your true metal yeah. uh, is, is, is ingrained in me. But also the, that creative adventure in uh, the profession and looking at research and saying, what if, uh, what if we tried that and not being afraid to think divergently and, and maybe, uh, 
once in a while be contrarian just to shake things up, but to be a constructive one, not a destructive one. There, there's a, a big difference there. And then I guess the last part is just the sense of family. I, I, the, the kids and the, and the heavy involvement in my local community is very important to me. That's it in a nutshell. And uh, as you were describing yourself there, you know, the author side of you, um, you know, a writer and a thinker. First, um, tell us about the books you've written. Mm. Well, I started writing articles, and then that created a critical mass. If you write enough articles for professional journals and magazines, you eventually, somebody eventually comes to you, or you can eventually go to them. And in my case, they came to me and said, look, it looks like you have enough to maybe constitute a book. So I started writing hot and heavy about middle school stuff, because that's where a lot of my background was. It has since grown to high school and I actually started out in primary elementary grades. Uh, so I really taught K-12 and, and helped out at, at college and university coursework as well. But uh, I started, my first two books were middle level, and then it started broadening into differentiation, uh, metaphors and analogies, which is cognitive linguistics for all subjects, summarization in all subjects, a lot more in leadership. Um, I've got uh, some that are co-written about pedagogy, two or three books like that. And then um, it's just continued with the articles of late. I write a lot for ASCD's Education Leadership and once in a while for Education Week and what does a that lot so- of affiliate magazines Sorry to, uh, around the world. Time out there. Um, what was the acronym you just gave gave me? ASCD. What's that? Education Leadership. Okay. That, that, that's the name of their flagship magazine. Okay. And ASCD is the largest professional development organization in the world for teachers. Okay. Um, it's Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. And then I wrote for Ed Week, Education Week, yeah. and then uh, a lot of their affiliate magazines. And when you describe yourself as, as a writer and thinker, how do you write best? What conditions need to be present for you to be at your best in terms of uh, writing? Well, to be honest, I'm a pretty immature writer in that – You know, I'm not this adult, you know, I'm just going to plow through and do the boring stuff. I always write the stuff about which I'm most fired up, most impassioned about it first. So if I'm writing a book, I write the fun chapters first. And then I go back and I feel like I'm doing a dissertation or at least a, a college term paper. And I fill in the rest. And what I find is when I get that out there and I write the stuff that just really lights me up, the rest of it takes on new meaning. And I'm able to get fired up about it as well. So I very rarely write in full, complete sequence. Yeah. I, I will go through. I might do a hook. I usually have to do an intro hook or opening just to set my own mindset. And then I just go for it. And I write feverishly. And then I go back and I fill in spots where, well, for example, I'm, I'm very aware that I need to make the implicit explicit and not assume that everybody understands what's in my head. Yeah. So I got to go back and make the reader feel like he or she understands it and that they can see themselves doing it. There are some writers who who tend to write memoirs without knowing it. In other words, I did this, I reflected this, this is how I felt. And it really distances the reader from the actual ideas. And I want to make these ideas completely useful. You own it. So if you ever take one of my ideas from an article or a book and you use it, I now uh, declare to you, it is yours. You own it and you're allowed to share that idea. Of course, you put your own energy on, take it forward. But I, I tend to write, and then I go back and I double check: Am I making sure the readership can see themselves doing this and, and doing it, or is it just about me? And I, I delete all that stuff. 
Yeah. Have you heard of the book uh, by Austin Kleon, Steal Like an Artist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love yeah, that. Yeah, it's a great book. And what you just described really resonated with me in, in terms of that book because Austin talks about good theft and bad theft. And what you just described is total good theft. You're giving people permission to steal your work and modify and tweak it based on the uniqueness of their own situations and the conditions in which they work. You know, that's exactly how all of us got to where we are today, is standing on the shoulders of those who come before and receiving the, the, the grace, the patience, the wisdom of others who were willing to share. And I'm so eternally grateful for that. It's, it, it, I guess in a way, it's, it's a way of paying it back to make it very free. I got to be honest with you, Andy, I got in trouble with national and international education leaders and authors for, for a number of years. And they eventually came around, but here's what was going on. When I do a presentation, I say, my slides are, your, are yours. All my handouts, take them, enjoy, run with them, improve upon them, and then come back and let me know how they improved, and I'll pass it along to the next person, because hmm. that elevates the entire profession. But I got all these people who sent me angry emails, even talked to me face-to-face -face about how now everybody was coming to them asking for their handouts and their slides. And that was their creative property as makes them look bad when they hold on to it. And if they, everybody has their slides, there's there's nothing, no reason for them to be hired, you know, to come work in a school or, some, or be a presenter. And I reminded them, don't you evolve. Don't you change and have new thinking. And the idea is that not that they do the ideas when you're around, but that they do the ideas when you're not around. That is the testimony for you as a leader. Not that, you know, they're all excited when you're just blowing sunshine around. Yeah. And then you get on an airplane and go home. And they eventually came around and said, you know what? The, now that I've started sharing openly all that I have, I'm getting so much good feedback and so many good tangential ideas that build on these. I'm a much better speaker and leader for having done that. And so none of them have come out and said, I'm sorry for ragged on you. <laughs> but they've come close. Yeah. Well, you know, what you're describing right there is, is uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset work uh, to a yeah. T. You know, it's like the traditional model of, of uh, sharing information was very f uh, fixed, right? Fixed yeah. mindset, right? And it takes a growth mindset to be able to give your work openly and to, to know people will grow from it and, and you will learn in the process. Um, can you share with people, I guess, you know, you said it that you started with primary education, but how did you move from teaching to your role? So first of all, tell people what you do, your work around the world, um, and, and how you took that leap. Well, yeah, I did some videos for ASCD on differentiation. The actual series was called at work in the differentiated classroom. That's on YouTube. And yeah. Yeah, that's available at ASCD. You can actually look yeah. that up and some of it's on YouTube yeah, and everything. Yeah. And people started calling in saying, we want to come see Rick Warmley's classroom. So that became uncomfortable, particularly when my own kids were about to come into my school. Uh, I wanted to be their school, not the school known for me. But prior to that, I had one, um, I was one, the, there are 81 of us in the very first run of national board certification in the United States. And I got paraded all over the world for that. Uh, it was invited to the White House. Uh, it was on Hardball with Chris Matthews, a, a TV show in the United States, on Good Morning America, another TV show. I was flown to a place to give speeches. And then I um, 
I, I won the, the Disney Award for English at one point and other some other awards. And I was testifying in Congress and people were asking for advice. And before that, I'd have to beg and borrow for just 30 seconds of their time. But now they're seeking me out as, oh, here's a knowledgeable teacher about education. And I was asked to start writing. When I started writing, I had a voice. And when you write an article, everybody thinks you're an expert, which isn't always true. However, mm-hmm. they said, would you come talk to us? Would you talk to us more about your thinking here? And my principal came to me at one point and said, there are some people in teaching who outgrow the classroom. And I think this is time for you to seriously think about that. Go and enjoy. We, the, the school board where I work here in Virginia came to me and said, look, You've done a lot for us at national conferences and on live television. I was actually involved in a debate about grading um, with some of the school boards live, and it was, it was interesting. But they said, you've done enough for us. We will give you a position should you want it. Just call us in the spring before you want to come back in the fall. But go and enjoy. And I did. I, I took that leap, which is very, very scary. But I would only do it if I had a critical mass of the articles and some, you know, you know, go to a conference once a year and do a presentation. I had to test those waters like that. But it was scary at first because you're worried about health care and retirement and yeah, where's yeah. the next job going to come from and you have a family. But it worked out for me. And I, you know, even in this high-tech age where everybody blogs, I still think publishing a book or three lends you a credibility and people say, well, you're marketable. People buy your books, will invite you to come present. And then that's very organic. It, one thing leads to another, and it continues. But it was this idea, this, my second year of teaching, somebody came to me and said, that's a really good idea. How would you like to present a state conference? And what I found that right away is I started doing that, going to colleagues and saying, I really, this is like amazing. What about writing an article? What about going, you know, presenting a workshop? And that is a vote of confidence like no other yeah. and a vote of, of, of respect a real testimony to you that somebody would want to suggest that you share your wisdom with others. And the problem is so many teachers and principals don't think they have the wisdom that anybody would want to read. Yeah. And like for example, I write about differentiation. I write about metaphors. I write about grading. Hundreds of people have written about that. If I caved in, if I succumb to that worry, well, it's all been said. What possibly more exactly. could I add? No, I can't add my journey and my twist, my interpretations on it, which means I'm adding to the collective wisdom. I, I have a voice, and I can't tell you how meaningful it is to help another educator find his or her voice and then act upon it. It really just it, it lights me up, man. Yeah, and you know, I think of a couple things there, and it's there's a um, have you heard of the cognitive coaching model? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. We should have one cognitive coaches in every school. Right. So I, that's what I've been trained in, and that's what I was hired to come here to do. And and the guy that trained me, his name is Jim Rosine. Uh, he's from Minnesota. He was a, a an assistant superintendent. Um, and he, I had him on my podcast when he was here, running eight days of training. So incredibly insightful. So inspiring to be around. You know. So on the yeah. podcast, I I asked him. Well, the question I'm going to ask you about the slideshow, which I'll do next, but um, he he said that one of his pictures, um, a transformative moment, was when he was assistant uh, superintendent of this district in Minnesota, and he felt that he had just 
he he just felt stagnant. He felt he'd been doing it for 22 years. He felt kind of stuck. He didn't know what was next. And he was a person that needed to continually move and learn. So that was a sign to him that something needed to change. So he found this incredible leadership program for business leaders and education leaders that was run in India in a rural village by the leaders of that rural community. Right? Wow. So now you get a group of people that fly over, a group of, of leaders, you know, veteran leaders fly over for this special training for, for a month. And the statistics are that 80% of the people that take this program, when they go back to their jobs, they quit their careers within a year. Oh, my God. Isn't that something? So when you said, when you talked about going into consulting and, uh, you know, that safety net and healthcare and all of that, that's what I experienced when I made the jump. I had nothing, you know. And when Jim yeah. shared that story, it was kind of like after 22 years, he gave up everything. So the first picture that he shared was that transformative moment of being in that rural village of India. The second picture he shared was the fear within him. Because it, 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 you know, he had made the decision that he had this fear, but then he just embraced his new decision full force that has led to wonderful things for him, you know? So it's, it's. Oh, yeah. But that's an inspiration to so many who are kind of mired in slogging back and forth to work yeah. on the assumption that this is the only way to be the adult yeah. and to be the mature person. I, you know, I'm, I'm struck by Brene Brown's work, oh, yeah. you know, Daring Greatly and other yeah. things where, you know, a lot of times when you're younger, you think as you get older, you're stronger, you're not as vulnerable. But really the act of maturation is making yourself more vulnerable yeah. to life, to others, and welcoming that as a growth moment, not dreading that or being threatened by that. And I, I've just, I've really embraced that after reading her work. Yeah, she her work really gives people permission to be vulnerable. And um, I did my first TEDx talk here um, uh, about a month ago, and it was you know I I really put put some things out there, um, and it was amazing that after my talk, a very difficult talk that I gave, I had a lot of people come up to me that said you know that thanked me for that. It was about uh, addiction and depression, and. Um, you know, I was never struck by it, but family members were. And I kind of explained sure. the principles that guided me forward away from those things was physical activity and sport and having a sense of purpose. And it was amazing that when you make yourself vulnerable and like Brene Brown says, uh, shame resiliency, right? That, yeah. I that idea is that you give permission to others and you inspire others to do the same. Um, so I'm going to transition into the slideshow question, which I love. Um, so just to give people some backstory, this is just a question that I've done the last few podcasts, but essentially what I'm going to ask you to do, Rick, is to imagine a slideshow. We see slideshows on Facebook of friends, vacations and other big moments. And then they've got these beautiful slides playing with music in the background. If you had to kind of choose a few slides to represent those transformative moments in your life. So we're getting a glimpse into you by seeing, hearing you talk about this slideshow. Um, what would those photos be showing and what music would be playing in the background? Man, <laughs> this is so eclectic for me. It is not profound. <laughs> I mean, good golly. I, 
I, you know, I didn't know if you wanted stuff from my youth or from my adult. whatever, whatever, okay, whatever. Those okay. transformative moments in your life. I, I will tell you that I remember distinctly, and to this day, I wake up with the the, the night sweats, the willies, thinking about something I did in high school, where my American civilization teacher. I went to her. Her name was Mrs. Karsten. And this is at Langley High School in McLean, Virginia. And I said, could I please, oh, please do something different than the typical essay that you always have us do or the typical, you know, DBQ response for document-based question or whatever it was. And she said, what, what did you have in mind? And I said, well, I would like to actually have a debate on stage between these historical figures. And so she said, okay. So I worked with three friends who were going to debate me. I was going to be Benjamin Franklin. Nice. And we're going to talk about some esoteric government, you know, legislator relationship. I don't know what it was. But I actually had a string going up to the stage, rafters, with little uh, cross piece ribbons on it, like it was the end of a kite. Yeah. And there was going to be a lightning storm. And I was sitting there holding it. I was dressed as Benjamin Franklin. And... I had all my buddies who had all these questions were going to ask me, and I was going to be profound and expand on their stuff. And I was so concentrated on the, the, the special effects of the lightning and the thunder <laughs> and coaching my questioners, uh, I totally forgot to memorize what I was going to say. <laughs> and I was humiliated. I mumbled my way through it. It was awful. I got a low grade. And um, she called me in afterwards. She didn't publicly humiliate me, but it, the whole class, you could tell I was humiliated. I was so impressed. I remembered nothing about it. And uh, that just scared me so much that I wouldn't be substantive. And I, you know, I, I won an award fairly early in, in teaching from Disney. And they sent all of us down to Disney. And one of the things they said about each of their exhibits is, good show good story. Otherwise, they do not open the new exhibit. The new ride has to have good show, good story, the new exhibit, anything at Disney. Those are the two paramount things. And it took me suddenly back to that moment in high school that I need to be very aware of the audience's experience. So my students' experience, if I'm teaching, I'm, I want to be very engaging. I want to really appeal to them. If I'm a storyteller, and I've been a storyteller because I used to run a summer camp, Frost Valley YMCA in New York, and a lot of places. Uh, it was a summer camp director. I didn't run the whole camp. Yeah. But at any rate, and I think the teachers of science, of PE, of math, let alone English and history, are storytellers. Everybody's a storyteller. Yeah. Humans love narrative. We just it, they, they, Everything makes sense. It's so meaningful that way. And I was struck that I can't have good show without having substantive story. Yeah. I have to have both because it'll fly flat. It'll go flat its face. Yeah. When I was doing the research for the book on metaphors, I, I actually interviewed pastors and rabbis. Uh, and I said, tell me about, you know, you come up with metaphors and analogies for your sermons, your homilies, your speech, your, what you share, your messages. And they said one of the biggest issues they have is that sometimes they get a wonderful story to be an analogy for something or a metaphor and all the people remember is the story, but not the message. Mm. And that really, you know, lit me up as well. And I decided that I can never let that happen. So because I'm so worried about 
I, I mean, there's a real fear in me that I'm letting somebody down. Mm. You're going to find what I say a waste of your time. I hate wasting people's time. Yeah. So I'm always going to look at what have I done to be engaging and, and dynamic enough to break them out of the reverie of everyday life and prove to them in the art of persuasion this is worth your time. Mm-hmm. And I have to make, make you somehow feel invited and safe mm-hmm. with this material because, you know, everybody wants to learn. It's a natural human state to want to learn and to do complex things. And if they ever say, I'm not interested or this is boring, that could be code for I don't get it or I don't feel confident. Yeah. And i got to make you do that. But by golly, it better be uh, the good story, which means it better be very deep and very substantive. And I think that those are both markers for me yeah. in that one regard. Does that make sense? Totally. And that's what Chris Henderson says with the TED Talks is that uh, connecting with the amygdala, right? And that yeah. story storytelling, you know, thousands of years ago, sitting around the fire, that's what it did. And that's what it continues to do to this day. And, and uh, you know, I'm reading the new TED book. I picked it up last weekend. Uh, I was in Qatar and I picked it up at the airport. And it's all about the art of storytelling um, written by Carb Carmelo, the guy that wrote Talk Like Ted. Carmelo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gal- it's a new yeah. one. I haven't seen that one yeah. yet. Yeah, it's a new one. And it's, and it's excellent. And he just goes right into storytelling with it. Um, so we got you on stage. That's one photo. So I can picture that. So that's one, one of your, your, uh, photo on your slideshow. Give, give me a couple more. In the, uh, you know, I'm a child of the sixties and the seventies. I grew up in those two decades primarily. And it was a time of what are you going to do to make a positive impact on the world? You know, how are you going to contribute? How are you going to make your mark, Rick? I think we've kind of drifted away from that to what does the world owe me? You know, mm-hmm. I'm entitled to this. I, I deserve this because I have done all this. And that, that's a different mindset. But when I was growing up, it was the idea that you found value in the service of others. And I find meaning in that. I, I truly do. And my parents would take us uh, twice a month to uh, a senior citizen's home. Oh, nice. And it was usually on Sunday afternoons. And my dad played folk guitar. So we play songs and we would just visit with them as full individuals, regardless of whether or not they were our relatives. And, you know, here I am, an elementary school kid, then a middle school kid, then a young high school kid. And I'm spending time going to senior citizens room and just sitting with the folks, reading to them, conversing about them, about the current events of the day, playing a game with them. But finding that time important to me, not just, hey, I'm doing it to make that person feel okay. Uh, that was really, it, it shaped a lot of who I am, I think. And I don't know that a lot of people do that on a regular basis today because we're always so busy. That looms up as huge, this idea of service to others. And along with that, my parents talked about the ethics involved in that. Uh, both uh, My dad is in law enforcement. My mom was a cytologist and, uh, and, uh, and pathologist. Uh, for the Navy, she she ran a laboratory here for a while, so she's in the science field. Yeah. And both of them would share stories of unethical practices, uh, really stuff that was bad. For example, um, in one of the labs where my mom was a, a, just a lab tech for a while before she became supervisor, they would only do one screening to determine whether or not those cells were cancerous cells, oh, wow. and they would declare cancerous or not. They wouldn't do the triple testing just to make sure. You don't want to give a false positive mm-hmm. or a false negative, you know, right. and, and people's lives are on the balance. And because they just didn't have the money, they cut costs and say, no, one screening, move on. 
and she screamed bloody murder and rose up and the policies changed. My father has done that in law enforcement, some things that were less than desirable. And those dinner table conversations and then getting out in the world and doing Meals on Wheels, yeah. my grandparents ran that entire program for Albuquerque for years, um, really, met, I think, shaped or made, made that, that impression on me that if I see something awry or something that is wrong and injustice, I need to actually interact rather than remain indifferent yeah. because that's just uh, that's uh, I am complicit in its continuance. And I, I can I can't stomach that anymore based on how my parents raised me. Does that coalesce into a, a slide? Yeah, totally. Well, you know, being an international educator for the last twenty years, and having so my boys um, are eleven and thirteen. Uh, my wife and I met in university uh, in Canada in '96, uh, and and then we um, left abroad. And we went and we actually were intending on visiting Japan, Hiroshima, Japan, of all places, right? Very wow. historical city. For just three months, we ended up staying ten years. Our our, our boys were born there. Uh, since Hiroshima, and so Hiroshima, Japan, is like our home. Uh, and then wow, we, that's we, on my bucket list. Yeah, I want to get there. It's amazing. We moved to Azerbaijan, Baku, Azerbaijan. Then from there, we moved to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Then from there, wow. we moved to Nanjing, China. And now we're in Saudi. And our boys, you know, they they have experienced so many things. And what you're describing, value in the, in the service to others. I believe that, that we have been able to do that in different countries. So they've seen a lot of different things in, in their young years, you know, and I really feel that they're, they're super empathetic and they really connect with, um, injustice, you know, and we have conversations about it. So, you know, we've been very lucky to see all the things that we've seen in the world and I wouldn't change their education for a thing. Like they, they go to the schools that we teach at, you yeah. know, um, and it'll yeah. always be that way until they graduate and, what a tremendous gift that that they are receiving through that process, oh, yeah. and they'll never forget that. I know that that service will always be very important to them. Oh yeah. Oh, you're so right on. I, you know, I I don't know if my wife would have ever gone for it all those years ago, but I do regret not taking the road of the uh, international school, the independent school, or a variety of countries. I know it can be a nomadic existence from time to time with a bank account one place and a car yeah. in another place, but it is invaluable. And my own kids, I told them both, when you graduate high school, before you go into college, I will pay for you to go to another country where you don't speak the language Yes, you know, for nine to 10 days minimum. Yeah. And you are going to navigate without this and you're going to go around and you're going to read the papers at the time, if at all possible, to see how they perceive the United States, because it's very easy to get so egocentric, and but also to appreciate that the United States does have a lot of positives yeah. about it, but you don't get that until you're out of it. And I think we get very complacent, and then we grow indifferent to what's going on in the rest of the world. Now, both my kids are very aware of what's going on around, around the world, and they really appreciate it. My son has absolutely no problem calling up and going through, staying in other countries through Airbnb oh, or whatever it. might be happening. Yeah. Where I, at that age, 
I would have been like, oh no, I'm a little bit, you know, unsure about that. <laughs> yeah. But today it's just the way the millennials or the end of the millennials go. That's the way they roll. Yeah. Um, so what's, what song would be playing over your slideshow as we see photos of those transformative moments? Oh my gosh. That represents this, you and your journey. Yeah, I know. This is going to be just, um, it's going to be a, a, a obscure reference, but uh, I love, it. I love uh, uh, Richard Bach's John Livingston Siegel and The Reluctant Messiah, those two books that came out way back in the 70s. And they made a movie with Neil Diamond's music. Nice. Jonathan Livingston Siegel. And I love that song, B. And so I, that was a theme of my life. I played the piano. I, I love that. Everywhere I went, B would be in there somehow uh, as I did that. But there'd also be a little Willy Wonka. Come with me and you'll be <laughs> the world of pure imagination. I mean, nice. I just... That lights me up, man. I, in all the different ways and memes it's been used, it, I, it still continues to light me up. That kind of thinking. Yeah. There's also, um, I don't know the music. It's probably some Three Dog Night or Creedence Clearwater Revival. Good one, where CCR. Where totally rocking out, full of life, and there's no holding back. I don't know, you know, what, which one of those will be. Maybe the Doobie Brothers. And you're, I'm <laughs> Love it. sharing with you the era in which I grew up. I know. <laughs> but yeah. I'm trying to think of a song today that would be playing in the background. Uh, I like Ed Sheeran. Yeah, it's good, except Ed Sheeran is a little bit too contemplative for uh, and reflective of some of the stuff I want to... I mean, I really want a really positive beat. I, yeah. I don't go for a minor key very often. It's usually a major key, yeah. <laughs> and it's fairly upbeat. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I... Um, I have found over the years that I am very reflective of my environment if I'm not careful. And if I'm around a lot of cynical people, um, it's different than skeptical. You know, cynical, they're really just everything's bad and there's no chance. <laughs> the skeptical, they're just willing to investigate. They're just withholding judgment, you know. <laughs> but cynical people, down people, I get cranky too. You know, I fall into the trap. And so I don't want to be susceptible to that. So usually the music I play is pretty upbeat. Well, I'll think of something. Yeah. Okay. No, I, there's a few uh, hits in there. I love it. Um, so I'm going to move to my next question, which is to, for you to describe major obstacles that you've experienced that have uh, forced you to develop more resilience and grit. So like you said, you talked about um, earlier uh, getting some uh, flack from people whose, I don't know, work that you you shared and they were upset and they oh, kind of, yeah, yeah. right? But what are some major obstacles that you've experienced in the work that you do that have forced you to be resilient and to show grit? Well, professionally, one of the darkest years I ever had was the year I won the Disney Award and I started writing articles. What year was that? I, I won this Disney Award, the American Teacher Awards. Yeah. And I was writing articles. But what, my first articles. Sorry, what Go year? Ahead. What year was that? Just to oh, reference. I apologize. Um, so it's ninety. Oh my gosh, ninety-four. I think. Okay. Okay. 90, 90, no, ninety-three, ninety-four. Okay. Anyway, um, I was writing an article, and I had a. I was in a brand new teacher in a new school. And they were very entrenched in the faculty and very antiquated notions. 
And what I would suggest in the article was threatening because it was a different way of teaching. I didn't name them, uh, but they knew that they were doing some of the practices I actually suggested were ineffective. <laughs> but I had not really mentioned it very much in faculty meetings. I had never really brought it up at all. Um, I was just writing about, hey, there's a way to teach, the way not to teach. And then I won this award. And I was paraded around all over the place. I was in National Geographic, 19... Oh, this is 94, 95. So it was 95. Fall 95, I was in National Geographic. On the front cover, uh, the first story was me, Ray Bradbury, and Bill Gates. Oh, wow. In one article. Just the three of us were mentioned. It was it was October 95 issue, which is just mind-blowing that we would do that. I was testifying in Congress. I was invited to the White House for dinner. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. I got all these accolades. And their teachers that were the old guard there started cussing at me. I mean, literally every one of the words. As I passed them in the hall, they would yell at me. I would avoid certain hallways. I was really thinking about quitting teaching because I was miserable. I, I, why, why would teachers act like this? And, and if they act like this with me, what are they doing with their students yeah. who are more subordinate to them even than I am? It's it it just unbelievable. And the, the principal at the time admitted to me, oh, he hated conflict. He didn't want to deal with that. And I really thought that was the end. And why, why am I bothering to do this? Because every day it was toxic. Why did I put myself through it? And even my department chair was, was a little over the top with some things. But I was writing and I was getting feedback on the writing. And it was from a national conversation and let alone statewide in Virginia. And slowly I began to realize that maybe I was onto something and that these guys were hurting in some way. And they were just lacking the information. Maybe my job was to persevere. Well, the principal that year decided to make me the mentor teacher for all new teachers coming in. Mm -hmm. And the colleague teacher would coordinate that program. And then these folks, as they started seeing some of the new ideas that I was talking about actually being used in the building, started quitting and moving away. Good. So I had to outlast, outwit, outsurvive, to pull upon the Survivor Game Show, uh, for the next two to three years. And eventually they were gone. And I started using my voice. I, I'm very afraid to speak up in faculty meetings because I'm afraid, you know, that a lot of faculty know I write books and they say, oh, there's Mr. Know-it-all, teacher geek, <laughs> telling us what to do. And I don't want to do that. But my classroom is wide open if you want to come there. So slowly they started moving away. And then I started approaching some people about it. For example, uh, we don't have enough substitute teachers sometimes when teachers are ill. So I covered a class for a teacher who was out for like four days. It was a French teacher. I don't speak French. So she had all four days show Looney Tune cartoons, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig <laughs> cartoons. And I thought, okay, maybe it's cool. It's in French. The kids will have to talk about it in French. You know, no big deal. I go in there. No, they're in English. They're just showing cartoons. <laughs> this is a, an eighth grade class. Oh, and wow. I was livid. <laughs> I threw the lesson plans to one side. And I said, no, you will teach me French. I know Spanish, but no, you will teach me French. And we will not do these cartoon things. And when she came back, I really got into her about this. I said, you know, you're an ambassador for our whole profession. And you do this stuff. You bring shame on what we're doing. Why? How could you do that? <laughs> anyway, within a month, she was moved out of the teaching situation because somehow what she was doing got up the, the flagpole to administration and she was removed. But... That was, it, it, you know, it, it took a while for me to persevere and realize 
I still have something. I'm still a worthwhile teacher. I don't have to listen to the bullies on the faculty to pull that up. That that really helped. And, you know, I think along with, you know, grinding it out those two or three years, uh, you know, with all the the teachers, essentially bullying, right? Um, but But holding true to your vision. And what you believe in during yeah, that time? I didn't become less than I was. Than I, I, I didn't sacrifice any of my principles. Yeah. Because I was peer pressured or collegial peer pressured to do it. Yeah. I will. I will tell you that I had a, in another school, I had a principal who would walk into classrooms and take the chalk out of her hands. We still had chalkboards back then, yeah. and say, "That's not how you teach. Let me show you how to teach." Which was very humiliating. She never did it once to me, but she did it to all my the people around my classroom. And I went to her and I said, you can't do that. It's very insulting. You, that needs to be done privately if you want to coach them. And then uh, just a week or two after that, I, I in my school district, if there's any a teacher who doesn't want to just have the, the principal's evaluation, you're allowed to have somebody called a peer observer who is trained in teacher observation who will do a write-up and submit it as part of your evaluation. I was one of those people. So it's very professional. I was really into how do you identify models of instruction and how do you coach teachers? A lot of cognitive coaching, all that yeah. stuff. And in the office one time, one of the secretaries with whom I had a, a real good relationship, she was going to be absent. We have one phone for the entire faculty under the staircase in the back of the school for all parent phone calls. <laughs> for every, everything we had to do, ordering any supplies, field trip arrangements. It was a pretty antiquated system. One, and it was like Harry Potter under the, the stairs. You know, it was awful. So she said, look, Rick, I know you have to make those those delicate phone calls with your peer observation evaluation forms for the teachers in other schools. So feel free to use my office. I'll be out for this week. And I said, oh, thank you so much. I can close the door and everything. So I'm actually doing that. I am talking to a principal of another school. And then I was making another call to a school board member who was inquiring about something. It was very high-end mm-hmm. professional stuff. This principal burst in the office, slammed the door, and she just said, what the H, do you think you're doing? This is our secretary's office. This is not for teachers. Your yeah. phone is the, under the staircase yeah. in the back of the school. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you're, te- you're treating me like this? Yeah. And so anyway, I said, excuse me, I, I need to call you back. So I hung up. I walked out into the main lobby. There are parents out there. There are the assistant principal over there. And I chewed out my own principal. <laughs> How dare you do this? I am a professional. You supposedly are a professional. I was doing professional work. We have one stinking phone <laughs> and under the stairs in the back of the school. When are you going to treat us like a professional? Nobody else would put up with this. This is how you support teachers and professionalisms. You can do better. You know. Love it. I let her have it. Yeah. At any rate, yeah, it was. It was all this stuff venting because she had done this stuff that I thought was so hurtful to my colleagues earlier. And then she did this to me and I just exploded. And the parents were like, their eyes are white, their faces are ashen. And I stormed back and I started my lesson on Mesopotamia with my (laughs) students. I was a little shaky, okay? So (laughs) later in the day, principal calls me down. Uh Uh-oh. And choose me out from my lack of professionalism. <laughs> I stared agog. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. What? Unprofessional. Okay. Maybe I lost it in the heat of the moment. <laughs> I should have chosen a more private time to, to express my opinion. I get that. But I am not going to apologize for the sentiment, you know, for what was going on. And she says, 
All right. I'm just going to put a letter of reprimand in your file, but I do hear you. Yeah. I have decided to install another, a second phone yeah. in the library <laughs> just for the teachers on the second floor so they don't have to come down to the first floor. How's that? I see. I, I'm hearing you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But to me, that was a transformative moment. I, I realized that I do have a voice. I have something to offer leadership, not just, and I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a practitioner. I have this voice. And that was fairly early in my career as well. And it, I had just sanctified leadership. They could do no wrong. They, they, they knew the bigger picture. They had more training than me. Who am I to suggest? But of course, over the time, I have finessed, how do I share a concern with a leader where I, I, I am ethically in disagreement, pedagogically in disagreement, so that they hear the message and so that I don't corner them because a cornered animal will only lash out yeah. and will fight back. I don't want to put them on defensive. So I'm okay with leadership that does not know, does not understand. I'll be glad to teach. It's fine. But if you continue to do unethical things, that's where you and I will have words. Mm. And I've got to find a way for them to save face. And it was during that time that I realized that any leader, any colleague, anybody in education with whom I worked, where I had a really big disagreement, I had to enter into that face-to-face, or now email-to-email, whatever it is, realizing at any given moment, that other person is doing the best they can. They're not doing something. They're not trying to on purpose thwart it. They're doing the best they can, given whatever's going on in their lives. And that really helped open me up to I can be patient. I can offer, you know, uh, forgiveness if I feel like I've been wronged. Uh, I, um, but I can also offer humility that maybe I was wrong, uh, that I could phrase it in a different way. Uh, it, it's helped me back off from that ledge of, oh, I'm so going to tell you stuff when yeah. you're done talking. And it's that idea that they come to to those situations, they bring into their daily work uh, their toolkit of skills and internal resources and oftentimes those internal resources are lacking and uh for them it is just lashing out i'm i'm gonna jump over here because i want to get one quick uh book sure insert elevator music here yeah i know um, so I got this book the uh, last week just because we're on leadership. The next question I'm going to ask you is to sum up guiding principles, uh, two or three guiding principles that, that you try to um, share with, with leaders. But let me tell you a story about uh, the 48 Laws of Power, this book I'm showing you right here. All right. Okay, Robert Greene. So I read I, or I heard about it being this amazing book, right? And I'm uh, in stopover. I ran a workshop in Bucharest, Romania a few weeks ago. And I was in stopover, um, uh, stopover, and I think we were in Turkey. And I was in the bookstore there, and I oh, I found it right. So I so I, I grabbed the book and I go, this is great, man. Um, the concise forty eight laws of power. Now this is this is a bestseller that is that is out there today. So okay, I'm gonna seek it out. When le- we're done here. Well, maybe you won't after I tell you uh, a oh, few no. a few of the laws. So. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God. And I'm, I'm just having a beer in the airport and I'm reading it and yeah. I'm, I'm appalled. I'm infuriated. Oh, no. So law number one, never outshine your master. 
What? Yeah. Laws of power. Never outshine your master because you will inspire fear and insecurity in them. Okay. Let me, let me just read you a couple more. Conceal your intentions. Law number three. Keep, what? Keep people off balance. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. Can you believe that? Um, listen to this one. Um, get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Law. Why, why? Is this a joke? No, it's not a joke. It seems to be a parody of the worst things. No. In leadership. Make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. Okay. Now I'm not going to, I'm just going to read a couple more to learn to keep people dependent on you. Use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim. Uh, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. And after, well, after a few... Maybe it is about power and not leadership. Exactly. But people buying that, like I did, I, there was a misconception that this was about how to be a good leader. And I, yeah. I got through that and I, I sent a tweet out to the author and I'm like, even power? What? It, like, I don't know. I don't... I don't get yeah. it, but anyways, crap like that That's is still yeah, crap like that is still out there and it's disgusting. But anyways, so uh, can you sum up like two or three guiding principles uh, that you kind of share in the work that you do with um, educational leaders? You know, empathy has become cliche, but I I think it's it's overused because it's so smart and wise. I think trying to walk in the footsteps of your teachers to see what the world is like from their point of view is actually really very, very helpful um, to do that. And it also means it's kind of like being a good leader is like entering into a good marriage. Whatever you do to make your partner look good yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, is, is actually going to come back and help you tremendously. Uh, so uh, being the sense of I'm not here to lead you, I'm here to facilitate. But I, I do agree, and I, I got this from a, a, a principal friend of mine, and I, I still think it's true. There is a time to be a leader, and there's a time to be a boss. Yeah. And for me, the bottom line is the student's future, you know, the student's successful learning and whatever comes of their future is always going to outweigh the, the needs politically, physically, emotionally of a teacher. Uh, so if a teacher comes to me and there's a, a – there's a – issue between the two, the student's outcome will always win. Mm. So I have worked with teachers and said, look, I know you're uncomfortable with this new thing we're doing, but if you're not here, you know, shifting my hands over to the left or the far right, whatever it is, if you're not over at this point by eight months from now or nine months from now, I'm going to make it real easy for you to go. You're not going to enjoy coming here. And why would you want to come to a place where you're always putting up with things that are, with which you disagree every day? But between now and then, my door is open, my heart is open, I'll be all smiles, we're good. But the bottom line is the student's success, not yours. Now, to be honest, my job is to make your job, teacher, as easy as possibly can. I will do what I will move mountains for you. Whatever you need, let me know, and I will do that. And my job is also to run interference and take away maybe some of the paperwork burdens or the other burdens that keep you from your craft. And that means that I would not burden a faculty meeting with a lot of announcements that could have been sent out by email. We will do things that we can do when only we are gathered together physically face-to-face, -face, not the things we could just send out individually. So we'll have discussions and debates and PD and whatever it is. Not, yeah. let's create a schedule for who's going to clean out the book room. 
and I think also the, the very first act of a leader is, is listening, not to form judgment. But a lot of teachers forget that. I, you know, I, I enter into all kinds of, of quick assumptions and generalizations when I sit down in conflict with somebody or just to hear somebody. And I really had to concentrate on things to do very much like we learned when we were kids, let alone as teachers with conflict resolution. This idea of I am listening so that I can prove to you back that I heard everything you said. And that at that point, once I, you are assured of that, I will form my response to you, my rebuttal to you. I think that's very legitimate. I also think that, t- that leaders have a responsibility to stay up to date. You can't stay up to date with everything. I get that. So what you do in the, in the, instead, as best you can, is that you get the very m- most knowledgeable, best people in each of those disciplines or fields, and you open yourselves to learning from them. And that you are a learner. You actually sit with them and say, tell me about it. I want to get up to speed on You participate in the in-services. You don't say teachers go to the in-service and you go do, you know, check your email someplace. Hmm. I think that is invaluable to create a sense of camaraderie, even if you have already gone through the training, to see you in the same room with teachers as they go through the training. And maybe that your role is, let me ask questions. I know teachers are thinking, but they're really kind of afraid to say it publicly, so I'll say it. Hey, presenter, what would you say to a teacher who's concerned about X? What it is, I can get that out there safely because it's kind of a hypothetical, but everybody is so in their internal editor going, oh, I'm so glad he asked that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, one of the things that you said listening, you know, one of the things that I've learned through cognitive coaching is that idea of um, uh, the listening set-asides, which is our tendency when we're listening we listen, listen with an autobiographical filter. So as we're listening, we're, comp- yes. we're, we're listening with that filter. Therefore, we're not yeah. present. And then oftentimes we're, we're reloading, right? So we're already thinking about what we're going to say next. So we're not present. So the, the genuine act of listening is such a important skill to develop. And I, I really like your use of the word genuine. And not the autobiographical filter. Both of those are good, are very, very helpful. I struggle with that, with uh, talking about grading issues, which are often the most contentious things I do. And I talk a lot about racism and how do you have conversations about racism that are honest, candid, constructive. And a lot of times we're running our own filters. We're so afraid that we're going to slip up and insult somebody inadvertently, or we're holding on to so much, so many issues. We have our own agenda. We want to get it out there. You know, you should, you should, you should. And both those contentious areas, grading and dealing with racism or the other unmentionable topics in a lot of schools, sexual orientation, culture, religion, let alone race. uh, A lot of times both principals and teachers don't have the skill sets to have those conversations so they don't blow up. They don't have the, the skill sets of civil discourse. How do we agree to disagree and that sort of thing? How do we how do we disagree with one another without judging each other as less mm-hmm. than you were before? Uh, I've seen so many faculty me- uh, conversations where people would say, how can you believe that? <laughs> if you believe that, you must be a terrible teacher back in the classroom. Like, no, no, that's not yeah, it. Yeah. So we have incomplete thoughts, uncooked ideas, but we shouldn't be judged for that. We're putting it out there, inviting that feedback. I think that uh, 
the principal has, has a huge role to play in all of that uh, through that listening, but also asking the questions with, uh, and helping teachers see, can you do without that filter uh, going through your mind of your own experience? On the other hand, I think it's okay and it's safe to say, hey, Bob, in your other school, you struggle with this same issue. What were some of the solutions you had? In other words, to really invite people to come in and say, well, you do have something to contribute from your experience. So I, I find if I walk in and I dismiss your experience, that's not helpful either. Mm. I have to somehow embrace it and, and prove to you that you have something positive to contribute to move us forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things, you know, that, that really charges me up in a positive way, like I, I get emotionally charged and inspired is a TED Radio Hour. And and before uh, the recording, I, I shared with you the, the audio clip that I want you to listen to. And I just always give a shout out to TED Radio Hour and the host of the show, Guy Raz, who you can find on Twitter, uh, at Guy uh, Raz, R-A-Z is his last name. But um, this audio clip is by Margaret Heffernan. Uh, and she goes around and she talks about with businesses and um, I think educational organizations as well, that idea that uh, the conversations need to change and that the discussions that we have need to change. And this one audio clip that I'm going to have you listen to is uh, from the Meaning of Work episode. Uh, so I'm going to have you listen to the audio clip. And then I want to talk, I want you to talk about what resonates the most with you in regards to the work you do, but what you connected with the most in this audio clip. So I'm going to play the audio clip now and then I'll have you just share. Okay. Sounds good. I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target? You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. Margaret Heffernan. So there it is. Um, so what are, you, what are your immediate thoughts when you hear that? I, I realize that our brain is hardwired from birth to want to do complex things, but also to connect, to belong. And when a child feels like he belongs in the room, that's like 80% of it. There are times when a student reads way below grade level, but doesn't want to reveal that for fear that that's more ammunition, that the rest of the world could reject them with that, with that ammunition, that they're not worthy of belonging here. And if they feel like they belong and they're connected to the people around them, I think they will move mountains, as I, as I alluded to earlier. I, I've had students who finally understood that I'm an advocate, not an adversary. And that means that uh, I am out for their success, not out to thwart them or document how they fall short and then share that to all the stakeholders in the child's life. 
once they realize I'm an advocate, they will work in the late hours of the evening because they want to connect. I think you, there's a thing called a mutual ethos where we enter into a, a mutual respect and an honoring of the other. I want to do right by you. The student wants to do right by me. We're looking out for each other. We're advocates for each other and success. So I will come prepared as a teacher every single day. And I'll be excited, enthusiastic, and treat it fresh and honor each of you as the individual you are. I will take you wherever you are and move you farther. I will not make assumptions about you. I, I will just be so excited to be in your presence and that you know, make you know that you make good company. I, we will do this. But you will honor me by doing the group work when I say do group work, <laughs> yeah. uh, doing the different assignments when I say do the assignments. And together we'll walk that journey. So if you fail at something, I will jump in that pit you have dug for yourself and walk side by side with you rather than wag that admonishing finger from afar and in a judgmental way. Because to share the journey is exactly what we're about. Yeah. When all is said and done, ultimately we're on our deathbed, it's with whom did you connect and what did you contribute to the world? And I think all of us in every single job is about meaning making. It made me think of Dan Pink and Dry. Yeah, and one of the biggest things is do you feel like you're a part of something larger than yourself and you're connected? Oh my gosh, I don't need to pay, be paid all these other dollars as long as it's a reasonable salary. I just want to have a meaningful contribution to matter. And I think that's all students K-12 are ultimately seeking is one, you know, competence in the discipline, but two, to matter. Who am I to have a voice? We don't want to fall for proof rock and T.S. Eliot, you know, who, you know, do I dare disturb the world or the universe in any way? Well, yeah, man, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be here and watch you do it. Yeah. It's kind of like we're making the, we want to create a world that's positive enough and exciting, enticing enough, inviting enough, really, that the kids would want to make it their own and then give them the tools to actually build that thing. I think ultimately that's what teaching is about. It's not just utility. We need to get more workers. <laughs> it's also about discovering a meaningful life. And I think a lot of people who develop a, 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 perhaps a depression later uh, or a, a crankiness in life or are really struggling have really not felt the connectedness. And we've got gangs in our communities, and one of the biggest things we've discovered is the people who fall into the gangs are the ones who don't have connection. And humanity is about connection. And I, I can't tell you how many times I have understood a child uh, you know, I, I've come to know him. I've spent actual proactive time. Let me learn about you and who you are. And then I've matched a portion of the lesson to that element is life. And the child lights up. And I'm like, yes, yeah. this is what teaching is all about. That, that aha moment of connection is the stuff that will carry over in the long times when you know, kids are just frustrating and cranky that day because it's a rainy day and nobody can go outside for PE. Well, you know, the um, what you're saying, I, I think of a, a study that was done, I think it was done by the Harvard School of Education, which was, it was just one study, but they're, rep, they're replicating the study. So, but the story was so profound that they shared it. I think it was shared in the New York Times. So essentially, this group comes in to um, do a study on connections between students and teachers, and they use this one grade nine class of like 325 students, something like, I don't know how many teachers, 70 teachers or whatever. So the researchers gave a survey to the teachers and students that was about their interests, their likes, you know, what kind of motivates them, that type of thing. 
they broke up the the um, the people into four study groups, or you know four four groups. And the first group, they didn't give any feedback to whatsoever. So the researchers got collected the data, gave no feedback to the teachers or students. The second group, they gave feedback to only the the students about the teachers' likes. Okay. Mm. So just, you know, kind of the, the data that informed the students about the teachers. In the th- next group, they gave feedback to only the teachers about the students. And then in the last group, they gave feedback to one another. So they found that, that in that last group, the students in that last group improved their, their grades by like half a grade or something like that. Wow. And it was based on even at a subconscious level, knowing that there's similarities and connections so that the teachers began to teach differently. So maybe it was just a connection. Uh, maybe they both liked American football or maybe they both liked the same type of movies. Maybe they both liked the same type of food, the same restaurant, whatever it was. But they found that teachers taught differently when they knew that there was connections and students accepted the teachers differently, knowing that there was, there was connections there. So but that's, that's kind of the dimensionalization of your colleagues and your students. Yeah. When you see them as fully formed people, much more than a caricature you formed in your mind, you're willing to invest in them. So for example, I think leaders should, should demand that departments and teams rotate different classrooms for their meeting spaces every month yep. when they get together. So you see the different teachers in their kind of power space and maybe you go to their homes and see that there's somebody's mom or dad or sister or daughter yep. and they're fully dimensionalized. You're not likely to dismiss their ideas. You're willing to actually weigh their ideas as having more veracity because they're simply a fully recognized individual in your mind, just like your students would be for a classroom teacher. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm going to transition over to uh, the speed round, which I know you can handle, man. Uh, did I tell you about the speed oh, round? No, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So the, spe- ahead, the, the speed round is I'm going to ask you uh, three or four questions, um, four questions, and your job will be to answer the the question, um, just answer it as uh, without giving any detail. Okay. Okay. So after the four questions – I will then ask you to reflect on one of those questions that resonated the most and leave my audience with one last piece of advice. So uh, that's the speed round, and we're going into it now. Uh, Ding, ding. Here we go. Uh, Question number one. Uh, So you've read a lot of books about education, but what is one book outside the, the world of education that has really impacted you that you can extract meaning from and apply to the work that you do? Boom. I, I would say that The Reluctant Messiah by Richard Bach really affected me as an educator. Okay, excellent. That, that's short. How's that? that that's, that's short. Okay, number two, you're going to complete this sentence. Your biggest fear is? To not belong, not, to not matter, uh, to be, uh, that I wouldn't, uh, be able to offer a positive contribution, I think. Okay. Don't Num- worry about that. Okay. Number three, the most important thing, I guess you kind of got into this before, but the most important thing that your parents taught you. Oh, uh, probably to fight uh, what is unethical and change it uh, and to fight for social justice. 
Okay. And you kind of went into that earlier. And number four, this one I like, if somebody was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what would the title of the book be? What? It's over already? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, yeah, I guess um, uh, he, he still had so much more to give. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I, how about this? Now, here it is. I wasn't done yet. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, now, reflecting back on those four questions, so a book from outside the world of education, your biggest fear, the most important thing your parents taught you, if someone was to write a book about you, uh, what? pick one of those things and then, and then dive more into it, leaving us with one last piece of advice, a, a gem of insight. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I have a real problem that I, I just value in different situations so many things that would elevate up and they'd be kind of equal to each other. So... Um, you know, I in that book, The Adventures of Reluctant Messiah, and its precursor, the Jonathan Lavers and Siegel, one of the phrases is, you know, if you argue for your limitations, sure enough, they're yours. And, you know, it, it's just filled with pearls like that. Yeah. And one of the coolest things is you get in this book, and it's so exciting, and there's all these different pearls, and you learn so much about life. Um, it starts out with a little parable about this creature at the bottom of a river and he was so afraid of letting go as the river roared above him, you know, all these different things. But no, he held on because that's what he'd do. And none of his friends ever let go. And he just said, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. So he let go. And he was just cast up into the river flow and banged against other rocks and other things and tumult. Or, or, it was a tumultuous experience. But eventually he got down to a much better part of the river and life was great and he was able to flourish. And I love that parable. I mean, it's really yeah. very cool. Uh, what are we holding on to that we thought we had to hold on to that really we don't if we allowed ourselves to shift perspective? So I'm always seeking the opportunity to have a shift in my perspective. And I kind of see that as a sign of an intellect. Yeah. Somebody who's intellectual is willing to revise their thinking in light of a new perspective. But you have to be proactive in seeking out the new perspective, not just let it happen. So I'm a big believer in making that perspective shift happen, not just doing it by chance. But you go through this whole book, you're so excited about life and living. At the very end of the book, they say, and of course, everything in, the book, in this book could be totally wrong. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you got me all excited and then you totally throw that at me? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it, re it reminded me that I need, not, I, I, I need to keep protect from falling from for every platitude as new thing and to be a little healthy skeptical about it all. And it taught me that every single year in education, I have to concentrate and finding at least one thing I will unlearn this year. And that includes not limiting the next generation of teachers, let alone students that I have, to my imagination. Because I really find that civilization, society, community stagnate. You know, a lot of teachers, myself included, earlier in my career, no longer, but I, this happens a lot. I'm guilty of teaching only to the level of content expertise that I have. Beyond that, okay, the unit stops. There's no more. <laughs> and, I, you know, we have to realize that, no, what I, what I present as a teacher or a presenter to teachers is the launching pad for their own investigation, and I move into facilitator mode. So I don't want to teach just to get kids equal to me. I want to teach them to surpass me. And I'm not doing my job unless I have proof 
that students have surpassed me in this, not just got equal to me in this. And that can be very, very scary because then I lose control. It goes in a different direction. But I still have control because we have the relationship and the connection between that. That seems to be kind of a guiding force in my life. And one of the things I got from that Richard Bach book. Excellent. Uh, you know, and so many, I, I was trying not to put on my autobiographical filter there. I was trying to listen to you. But <laughs> well, go for it now. I couldn't, I you couldn't. permission and license. Yeah. I couldn't help it. I was trying to jot down some notes. Uh, and the one, there's a few things that really stuck with me. The one thing is I had Eric Scheninger on my podcast. Oh, um, yeah. Eric's awesome. Yeah. And, and, um, he, uh, he's such a good dude. And, and he talked about, I entitled the pot, the episode learning to, uh, unlearn and relearn because that's something that he really yeah. stressed in there is, we must put ourselves in a position to unlearn and always relearn, you know, yeah. and that's, that's totally growth mindset, right? Um, that's renewal. I mean, I, I think this idea that you seek renewal every year yeah. is huge for any level of education. And that's what ultimately happens is a sense of refreshing oneself and renewing and rededicating oneself, uh, becoming something more than you were when you do the unlearn and then relearn stuff. Yeah. The the other thing is uh, one of my favorite Henry Ford uh, quotes. We have a, a wall of quotes right here you can't see, but we, we put up uh, in our office quotes that resonate. And one that has always stuck with me is, if you think you can do a thing or think you can't do a thing, you're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Perfect. Yeah. So it's that idea that we must instill within ourselves a, a mindset that allows us to continually uh, unlearn and relearn. The last thing you mentioned, have a healthy skepticism. And since Twitter has taken off uh, over the last few years, you know, anybody with a device can post, you know. Right. And, and we really need to be aware of what we're retweeting and what we're favoriting. Um, and that we need to have a healthy skepticism for everything that we see on social media. Agreed. You know, completely. Uh, and, and, but also teach that savvy to the next generation, because yeah. I think people of my generation and, and, and you're younger than I am, but you know, your generation and others, I think we've got a sense of journalism and integrity of fact and to double check, but all our kids K-12 now have known is this current world of competing ideologies, changing the facts that are promoted or, or de diminished in, in, in regard. And that's a scary world if you've never had the background of what, what really was done with integrity before. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, and the last thing I just want to leave with is that idea of, you know, um, teachers as inquirers and what you were talking about, that, that learning and I'm in such a wonderful school here, the uh, King Abdul University of Science and Technology. And my role as a pedagogical coordinator is to work with teachers. Part of it is coaching, but part of it is collaborating. There's a little bit of consulting, very little evaluating. I work within the, the, you know, the, the boxes of collaborating and coaching. But one of the beautiful things here is that we have professional inquiries. And that's what drives teachers' learning. There is no appraisal, you know. It's basically based on uh, teachers' self-assessment of themselves and their teaching, based on collegial feedback, based on student voice, uh, student feedback about their teaching. The teachers here set professional inquiries that are all about them. It's not about learning to teach math better. It's uh, imposed it's, from on high. Yeah, it's all on them. 
and that my job is working with them, taking them through their professional inquiries, collecting data to support their inquiry and drive their learning. And it's oh, a, it's, man. it's a self-authoring. It's so transformative. They yeah. own it. Yeah, it's self-authoring. It's it's actually referred to as self-authoring. Um, so it's a beautiful thing, and and I would love to to get you get you here. So I'll introduce you to the. Uh, you know, uh, virtually by uh, to the admin team here, but you're doing great work, and I really appreciate your time, Rick. Oh, thank you. This is quite an honor. Yeah. You are well regarded around the world, Andy. So thank you for letting me do this. Yeah, I appreciate it. And the other thing is, I know you had a little Twitter dilemma a couple years ago. I was one of your your uh, yeah. your go to to men that uh, started trying to get you new followers yeah, and your right. new account, right? But um, there's two Rick uh, Warmly accounts, but can you tell uh, tell my audience where they can find you on Twitter? Yes, yes. Well, it's my full name with a two on the end. I'm so creative. <laughs> second said, Twitter account. Second account. <laughs> yeah. So it's at Rick Warmly, spelled out all the way out, Rick and Warmly. Yeah. Two okay. on the end of it. And then there's rickwarmly.com, yeah. which is my website. And, you know, most of that is for, you know, uh, articles I have either written or Rick, I want to refer people to from other people and ways to get me present. But there's multiple places on there to send me an email. Okay. Um, and that's fine if they just want to do that. Okay, excellent. So I'm going to share a bunch of stuff in, in the show notes. Um, so I'm just going to sign off, but I just want you to stay on for a minute and, and just have a sure. chat before we leave. But. Uh, everybody, thank you very much for listening to my Run Your Life podcast. Thanks to Rick Warmly for, for taking the time to be on. And I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.